Welcome to Conversations with Kim. This podcast is about awakening the human spirit, seeing beyond this moment, and exploring alternative paradigms for how we work, lead, and live. I invite you to sit back, exhale, and enjoy the flow. Grant Strem is the chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies Canada an industry disruptor focused on producing vast amounts of zero-emission hydrogen at a low cost. Born, raised, and educated in the oil and gas hub of Calgary, Alberta, Grant holds a BSc in geology and an MSc in reserve characterization. He has spent his career working in the industry as a reserve evaluator, petroleum consultant, research analyst, and business owner. In 2015, Grant's life changed when he co-founded Proton Technologies with Dr. Ian Gates. In this episode, Grant explains the technology while taking us into the future, where clean energy is abundant, technology has been unleashed, and human capacity has expanded beyond our planetary boundaries. As a self-described person with an opinion, Grant speaks on why carbon taxes are important for motivating change, the missing conversation around air pollution, and what is needed to expedite the development of critical technologies. Well, Grant, thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's my pleasure to be invited. Thank you, Kim. And Grant, for the rest of the audience that may not know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Grant Strum. I'm the one of the co-founders of Proton Technologies. I'm the CEO and chair. And I have a profound belief that Western Canada and the world uh, needs to aggressively decarbonize. And there's a path to save a lot of money while doing that. So um, I'll elaborate on that as we go. That sounds good. So Tell me, who is Proton Technologies? Well, now there's, uh, I guess we have about 150 shareholders, so it's all of them. And there's about 50 or 60 people working with us. So it's all of them and us <laughs> as well. And um, in its early days, is of course, it was a, a much smaller subset, um, which was primarily uh, myself and Dr. Ian Gates who was one of my former professors during my master's degree. So at the time we started Proton, he was the department head of petroleum and chemical engineering. And now he's still doing something at the university. I can't remember what his title is, but I think it's more uh, administrative nowadays. But he still has about 30 grad students and um, is interested in helping us help the world with decarbonization challenge. So tell me about the decarbonization challenge and how Proton Technologies brings the solution to the table. So many governments around the world have recognized that uh, carbon dioxide is something they don't want to have emissions of, and they have a lot of uh, goals for reducing carbon dioxide emissions. What Proton Technologies can do is take significant amount of energy from existing oil fields around the world and leave the carbon in the ground. So we do that by injecting oxygen, which reacts with the oil, and that reaction triggers other reactions that give us hydrogen from the water that's in the oil field. And so this hydrogen, uh, we can we can 
take only hydrogen from the oil field by using a downhole hydrogen filter, or we can bring all the gases to surface and separate out the ones we want and re-inject the ones we don't. Uh, in many parts of the world, there's a significant carbon tax. So being able to take CO2 and inject it into, uh, sequester it as, as a rock is an important aspect to decarbonization by netting off emissions from somewhere else in, within one's portfolio. So for example, if Suncor is, is emitting 20 million tons per year of CO2, instead of having to bring all of that to zero, they can just sequester 20 million tons per year. And then that's how they can get to net zero. Um, to me, it's it aligns well with our hydrogen business because we can sequester huge amounts of CO2 and turn the CO2 into carbonate rock within the formations. But the the big goal for, uh, for me personally isn't CO2, it's air pollution. Air pollution is not discussed very much, but it's a major killer. There was roughly 10 million deaths last year from air pollution. And there's only 8 billion people roughly. So, you know, the statistics on dying from air pollution are shocking and worthy of discussion. And if we can use transportation systems and heating systems that don't create these uh, air pollution particles that uh, interfere with our biological functions and our hormones, then I think humanity and our biosphere in general is much, much better off. The good news is that there are solutions where people can save money by changing, and that's starting to be recognized around the world. So it's not just sequestration of carbon. What you guys are proposing is that while you're producing clean hydrogen, and what you're going after is not just the energy, it's the air pollution. Am I hearing it right? If we can, if we can provide huge amounts of hydrogen to the world and people use them in fuel cell vehicles, for example, then that directly displaces uh, an idling diesel engine or, or some other uh, combustion process that is actively causing air pollution. So um, yes, carbon is, is a proxy for air pollution, but it's not the full uh, it's not the full exact picture. It's actually transitioning to a different way that we're powering our world. Exactly. Yes. So even if people are switching to electric vehicles, using hydrogen to power the electric grid is, I think, a, a very big part of uh, the the direction and the path that we're heading to. So I'm happy to supply hydrogen for vehicles that have hydrogen fuel cells. I'm also happy to supply electricity, clean electricity, to vehicles that are battery electric. So one of the things, and I want to pick your brain on this, is one of the things that I got so excited about when I first heard about you and your technology is I consider myself relatively up to speed on you know, new technologies, where the world's going. And I have, haven't heard of anybody talking about hydrogen or few people, and maybe it's because I'm in Saskatchewan and the focus really is on nuclear. But I'm wondering if you can answer that. Why aren't we talking about hydrogen on a large scale when it is? Um, it appears to be such a viable option for clean energy? I think it depends where you are. Yeah, so in Western Canada, where we're used to having natural gas as a very, and coal as very low-cost energy solutions, um, now with the carbon tax, by 2030, we'll be paying $170 per ton for emissions of CO2. 
And that makes natural gas and coal-fired power plants very uneconomic. They will be out of business 10 years from now, or everyone will just pay so much for the energy that uh, it's industrially uncompetitive. And so even though there is great solar and wind and geothermal resources and nuclear uh, concepts in Saskatchewan, uh, hydrogen is where our field site is. And we see that there are a few dozen other oil and gas fields that would be super appropriate for us to take over and, and do our process. So one of the missing ingredients from hydrogen has always been a large, low cost, clean supply. So in the past, electrolysis was viewed as the main pathway. And a lot of Europe is still thinking in terms of electrolysis, but that has some efficiency losses and some greater expense in comparison to a process called steam methane reforming, which today provides 95% of the world's hydrogen by essentially burning natural gas and making mixing it with high temperature steam. And then uh, water gas shift is triggered and it, they pull out the hydrogen. We do a very similar approach to uh, steam methane reforming, but we use the ground as our reaction vessel and we don't have to buy natural gas as the fuel for it because every old oil field still has a lot of oil in the ground. So the fuel is basically free. It's somebody else's abandonment liability. And we can repurpose that for making huge amounts of hydrogen from the ground. So I think it may have been slow to get to the conversation just based on the lack of availability of hydrogen. I think it's really cool the technology that you're proposing that you're already doing, you've got one site in Saskatchewan and how many sites in Alberta, sorry? So far, none in Alberta. Okay. We have uh, one licensee who may build in, in Alberta and we have some interested customers on the Alberta side of the border. So we'll probably, we'll probably build out quite a bit. Long-term, we, we need lots of resource. So our goal for Proton Canada is to supply 10% of the world's energy by 2040, which will require many, many large projects and a lot of resource. Uh, We feel that about one-tenth of of Western Canada's resource in the ground could supply 10% of the world's energy for 50 years. So the volumes are vast and the potential is very, very large to be a major hydrogen exporter in this clean energy way. I think it's really exciting. And the the part that I like the most is when you and I were talking last time, you spoke about how you're just using existing infrastructure, like there's no additional land degradation. And when you talk about how hydrogen is produced, otherwise, there's a large energy input even to get that hydrogen, but you're using the energy that's already stored underground. I mean, it sounds like a huge win. And I think you've compared it to in one of the articles I was reading that it's kind of like equating wheels with a suitcase. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to (laughs) that analogy and how this applies to almost being a no brainer on how you do this. Yeah, I'm happy to. So yes, it is kind of like wheels on suitcases. Everybody knows that oil has a huge amount of energy. We've been making uh, certain forms of oil, diesel and gasoline in particular, as transportation fuels for a century. And all an engine in a vehicle actually does is allow oxygen to mix with those oils. So a tremendous amount of hot gases are released and it fires pistons and off the car goes. So everybody kind of knows in their mind that oil contains a huge amount of energy and oxidizing it releases that energy. So when you think about an oil field, 
from an efficiency standpoint, it seems a little bit weird to have to go get these very specialized types of oils like diesel or gasoline and carry them around so we can slowly add oxygen to them within a specialized engine. Uh, why not just go straight to the source with oxygen? So it seems like a simple concept and it, it truly is at the heart of it. And I, I have used the analogy uh, wheels on suitcases because for decades, people carried around suitcases and they knew about wheels. It wasn't this big mysterious thing. But once you bought your first suitcase with wheels, you're like, wow, why have, been, why have I been lugging this thing around for my whole life? You know, yeah, it's it's just interesting how sometimes it's a very little obvious thing in hindsight can have such far reaching implications. And oxidizing the oil in place means that you don't need to have a specialized vessel for certain types of oils. Pure oxygen will react with any oil. Like it really, um, it really is not picky. And using the ground as the reaction vessel helps. It's it's within the pore space within an oil system. And so you're you're actually not losing all that heat energy. A lot of the heat energy will drive reactions that make hydrogen. But even at the end of the project life, you still have this very hot mass of rock that you can use for decades beyond as a geothermal resource. So it's not, I guess, if you look at the whole life cycle of a system like ours, it's way more efficient than having to move these carbon molecules as part of oil all over the place. So the cost of energy should drop dramatically based on this new cost structure. Thank you for providing clarity on that. And then the other part that I find interesting is, and you said this to me last time, you can use exact existing pipeline infrastructure to transport hydrogen out of these sites, right? Like there's not a, there's not necessarily a need to build a whole lot more infrastructure, is there? Well, the po- the power lines are the the very fast, easy way to get energy to the grid. So use the hydrogen and turbines on site to make electricity, and that is that is the fastest path. Pipelines in general, natural gas pipelines, need some study. And so trying to figure out which uh, pipelines are capable of taking what percentage of hydrogen is a case-by-case business. So some some pipelines can go full hydrogen, but many of them are limited by some practical limit. Uh, it might be 40%. It might be 5%. It, it depends on the condition of the pipe, the metallurgy of the pipe and the partial pressure of the hydrogen. So exactly how much can be taken off from existing pipes is, yeah, must be a case-by-case determination. Okay, but the power the power lines coming in, that's where the real quick win happens is you're putting turbines up and you're just feeding back into the grid. Yeah, plus the virtual pipeline. So just trucking it away. Um, you can get about eight tons of liquid hydrogen on the back of a truck. So, you know, at retail stations in the States, hydrogen is selling for like 12 US dollars a kilogram. So if you times that by 8,000 kilograms, it's a, it's a meaningful value load. So I think that using trucks will be part of the initial plan. So we are already loading hydrogen into, we've begun loading hydrogen into tube trailers that just as a compressed gas, but um, we see some value in a path towards liquefying the hydrogen as well. Okay. So if we look at, if we step back and we look at the future of energy in the world, so we, we know the conversation around solar, wind, nuclear, 
we're bringing hydrogen to the table. What do you see in 20 years as the, I know you guys want to be supplying 10%, but what do you see as the breakdown of the future ideal energy structure? Well, it varies through time and by location. So some places really love wind and solar and, and have a lot of wind and solar, like Germany. It's unbelievable how much wind and solar they've already constructed. Um, I think there will be an increase and further improvements in the cost structure and the technologies in wind and solar power. So I like solar, especially for existing buildings and and ecological disturbances, like the roof of a Walmart or above a highway or things like that. I really like those. But um, I don't like those things that chop a big new section out of the desert to build it or um, in areas where there's like condors or you know rare birds of prey that are getting um you know not getting along with the windmills very well Uh, but i do see the mix decarbonizing so for example like when on earth day joe biden said the us is going to go to 50 percent less carbon emissions than we had in 2005 and we're going to do that by 2030 that's like eight and a half years from now that is a very significant Uh, cut. They are, yes, it's true. They are partway there already. And that's partly due to the uh, reduction in coal use. But I think that, you know, goals like that will be more and more common and that these will clamp down more and more through time. And it won't just be energy products. I think there are going to be carbon border adjustments. I think that there's going to be a carbon intensity sticker on many, many different products. So you might buy an iPhone with a sticker five years from now that says has a carbon life cycle carbon intensity of such and such, which if you go back and add up how much CO2 is emitted for mining and processing the metals that are in your iPhone, all of that will add up to a sticker amount, which influences behavior where some people would rather buy an iPhone that has a lower carbon intensity than uh, another one, a different model. So it rewards good behavior right from the, the mine to and through how it's transported and assembled right until it's in your arrives in your hand. So I think that carbon intensity tracked by blockchain will be increasingly a part of what consumers are aware of. And, and there will be a stipulation based on that for making it more and more carbon efficient. My mind's going as you're talking about this, and I want to, being from Alberta, I know this is a contentious issue with you with you operating in Alberta. What's your opinion on the necessity of a carbon tax to get us to a neutral economy? I think a carbon tax is an important disincentive. There are, uh, I've been having conversations with lots of large emitters for five years, and the intensity of conversation dramatically changed after last December and changed further still after the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, federal uh, jurisdiction, uh, carbon emissions are federal jurisdiction, basically. So now there is a a significant motivation. Where there is no pain, it is unlikely that a big corporation will make changes. They're making money, they're comfortable and happy. Why wreck something that's, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of thing? Yeah. Um, And I think in, in Canada, we have a bias like it's still really cold in winter, right? <laughs> so in the back of your mind, while you're shivering for like eight months of the year, it's really hard to fall truly in love with the um, global warming and greenhouse gas uh, concerns. 
we should be terrified of air pollution, but it's it's really like everybody in Canada probably wishes it was five or ten degrees warmer. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I think there's some sort of a a resonance around that too. You're saying we should be more concerned about air pollution, and I would agree. I don't hear a lot of people talking when it comes to the environmental issues facing us about air pollution. Now, it's not that there isn't any talk, but it really is plastics, carbon, reforestation. What do you think it is that's preventing us from talking about air pollution? It's because the particles are so small, you can't see them. Microplastics, you can at least show up picture of what it looks like on the top of Mount Everest or some untouched Antarctic glacier. Yes, microplastics are everywhere and they're easy to image and easy to understand. But these smaller than 2.5 micron particles that go through the blood-brain barrier and make us sick and give us dementia and cancers and reduce our IQ and all these other problems that come with air pollution are just so convenient to forget about because they're they're so tiny. Like one of the big reasons New York went from horses to cars so quickly was because all the horse poo in the streets. Right. We still have that problem, just we can't see it. Mm. But it's a serious, serious problem. I often see the problems facing our world as interconnected. How do you see air pollution, carbon neutrality, and I'll say the swath of everything else that needs our focus right now? How do you see them as connected? Well, I think making low-cost hydrogen from areas that are already disturbed, ecological disturbances, um, it can really, really help us with um, avoiding new encroachment into these ecosystems. So whether you're drilling for oil and gas, like if you fly over Texas, it's unbelievable the amount of, of drilling pads in the Permian. It's like, it's pretty crazy to see from an airplane. It's true of many different types of mining and other types of resource uh, collection that require new roads and, and new ecological disturbance. And one of the biggest ones is our agricultural footprint. So my, my belief is that um, one of the reasons that we are not going high tech as quick as we can is because energy costs are relatively high. If you could have a tunnel full of hydroponic lighting and pumps to run everything, and it's stabilized because of the geothermal gradient. If energy was low cost, tunneling gets cheaper. So does setting up all the rest of this stuff. So I think that many of the the methods that we do to harvest food, harvest minerals, harvest energy uh, do encroach quite significantly on the natural environment. And if we take over all these huge existing oil projects and just turn them into big clean energy cash cows, and just have them cre- create, you know, the next century of, of clean hydrogen for us, then that gives us a, a, a good long chance to make um, a reduction in our agricultural footprint, a reduction in our mining footprint, in, in many other ways. Um, energy is like really the, the common building block that limits most of the economics on these challenges. H- hydrogen is a big part of that. Uh, you can make microbial proteins to offset the amount of meat people need if they have a protein-rich smoothie once a day for their kids, they're less likely to you know, kill that endangered whatever it is to feed their kids. And I think it helps resolve many, many challenges. 
Thank you for drawing that line and weaving that thread. I, I think it's important to see the interconnectedness of issues. And I, I like what you're saying and that my mind wasn't really there that for us to solve most of these problems, it, it's going to be energy-based. We need energy to do it. And it needs to be clean energy. Otherwise, you're up against that paradigm of you're solving one that essentially you're like robbing Peter to pay Paul type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I hope someday fusion power or something really clever eclipses all of this. So hydrogen, not just uh, hydrogen energy, but all energy can be much, much more low cost. Just like now we assume clean water is ubiquitous. It's basically like a human right. Whereas that wasn't true 200 years ago. It was something you struggled for to find and create and you hoped your kids didn't get sick. And I feel like once there's enough uh, drop in cost on energy, we'll just get into broadcast power because, you know, whoop-de-doo, there might be losses here and there, but if we can organize ourselves better, it opens up whole new pathways that are not front of mind for us today. So help me with this. I want to see see your vision of the future. Um, let's say we can get to a place where we have broadcast power. We're 20, 30 years down the road. What do you see? How does the world look different? Instead of having to charge up your Tesla, you would have an antenna. So suddenly you're a thousand pounds lighter instead of carrying all these huge batteries around and you can pull energy directly from uh, the broadcast source. So whether it's a tractor in some field, whether it's mining equipment, whether it's uh, maybe even the iPhone in your hand, uh, you wouldn't need to worry so much about uh, the cables to bring power through the walls from you know, a centralized source or even a disseminated source wouldn't be necessary. And if you were making some, maybe you just broadcast it in and blockchain figures out how to pay you. So if you're driving around with your antenna, you know that in the net pool, how much energy you're taking. And I know how much I'm putting out there. So maybe some large computer system, a database can can track the ins and outs of that. I'm almost imagining like a Wi-Fi, um, how we yeah. can get Wi-Fi anywhere, but you're saying it's two-way. So if I've got a device or something that's generating power, now I'm putting it back into the system and maybe well, there's even a, something that, monetarily attached to that for me. That's a good analogy. So it's like um, kind of like a global Wi-Fi about for power. So Nikola Tesla was actually uh, doing experiments in relation to that a long, long time ago in Colorado. The reason that they didn't end up getting funded and going ahead is because there was no easy way to bill the, the eventual user. Whoever wanted to could build an antenna for receiving power. And unless you had some way to track that and uh, bill them for it, it, it was difficult. I think with remote sensing, I think there are techniques that it can be done, but it would <laughs> be quite disruptive to how things are done today. Keep me in the future. I want to stay here with you because I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. I hear so much focus on, well, I hear it seems like there's the technology camp and then there's the we need to change who we are as human camps, not use as much energy, um, have an appreciation for natural systems, the whole paradigm shift of not being a linear economy, not considering ourselves as just consumers. And then there is the, or we stay as we are and use technology. I'm kind of a, maybe it's in the middle way. There's an and way. When we're living in the future and we're broadcasting in energy, who do we need to be as a species if we're actually going to live on a sustainable planet, not just the technology? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think there, 
different people will trend towards, you know, somewhere on the spectrum you mentioned. Uh, some people would will always just want the biggest yacht, no, no matter what kind of uh, power uh, it's doing or what kind of kind of destruction it's causing. Um, you know, that's a, a common part of the human psyche. Will that go away? I doubt it. So as much of that as we can get below ground or or off Earth surface, like one of the reasons I'm a big proponent of expanding into space is because it's virtually limitless in what we can do and achieve up there. There are high grade meteorites that can be refined into various metals and we can construct just amazing things without damaging an ecology like on earth. So earth has this fragile ecology and I'd like to see humanity expand. I'd rather there be like a hundred billion people living all over the solar system and planet earth as pristine as possible. If we are sticking around on the surface of our planet as energy costs get cheaper, I think that's going to end up with increasing hardship. And then there's going to be, you know, population controls and, and various challenges, unless we're proactively expanding beyond damaging our ecosystem. And yes, we should try and reduce and mitigate our, our impact. And there will be clever ways to do that. My personal belief is the best ways are through technology. For example, vacuum train, vacuum tunnels can allow supersonic transportation between cities without, you know, raining down these 2.5 micron particles as part of the pollution load. Um, they're just, it's just simply a very low friction way to go. And so I, I want to see a whole bunch of technological advances that get us there. But at the same time, I don't want to see limitations on human potential. So we need to shrink our footprint ecologically, but I think part of that is expanding into space. Okay, I like this because I've always struggled personally uh, a little bit with the space uh, focus on on the kind of the next version of space. In that, so many things happen at home. I'm wondering, I've wondered, well, why aren't we focused at home? But you're the second person I've spoken to that's uh, challenged that a little bit for me, and that. Um, survival on our planet is actually intricately connected to if we can survive on space. Totally. And I'll give you an example. So there's a company that has a proton technologies license and they're called orbital farm. Their goal is to make microbial protein smoothies for the starving villages all over the world. And part of the reason their, their destination goal is because everything you do in space for food and energy must be mass efficient. So you can't have, you know, this giant ecosystem that we depend on, like we do now for food, where the sun and rain are doing certain things. Like you have to de depend quite a bit on efficient technology. So anything you build for space habitation is necessarily uh, energy efficient and recycles a lot. And we'll get all of these systems that are figured out for that goal to come back here and make our lives much, much more energy efficient and prone to recycling. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit, but you're in a concentrated design requirement state for anything that you're designing for space. And if those designs can help us get way more efficient here, then everybody wins. So take me back to hydrogen then. What I'm hearing from you is hydrogen is this, it's here already. We've got the technology, we've got the infrastructure it can be done cheaply. 
And it might not be what we're using in energy 30, 40 years from now, but it's a beautiful stepping stone that's ready today. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. Hydrogen is, you know, the most basic building block for so many things, chemicals that we use. It's the most common atom in your body. You are mostly hydrogen uh, by atomic uh, number of atoms of hydrogen, basically. Perfect. Well, it sounds like a pretty exciting future for you guys, Grant. And I really appreciate you painting the picture of uh, what's possible. I hadn't even thought about energy that's just dropping into our car, similar to like a Wi-Fi signal. So that that definitely gives me something to think about. And I'm sure it'll give a lot of our <laughs> other viewers something to think about. Yeah, there's, there's a lot that we're um, not exploring as a species. Somebody discovers something like 100 years ago. And the concept more or less just stays buried. Like uh, oil fields have been making hydrogen for more than 100 years since the first time somebody started injecting air into an oil field. Um, unquestionably, all of them make hydrogen. So why, why it takes us so long to implement these new systems, it's, I guess there's a lot of reasons, but some of it has to do with inertia within institutions and corporations. There's a predictability to royalty streams. There's a, you know, a, a quarterly result that's highly predictable as opposed to uh, accelerating hard into R&D, which I think we'll see more and more of. But um, yeah, it's funny how what's what's old is new, right? Um, so I, I, I like, and I, I want to, maybe we'll end with this question, but around this, I think you're getting at the paradigm shift needed to transition and get to where we need to be to meet our emission goals and to avoid global warming and to get clean, clean energy, not avoid global warming. We're in it, but work with it to the best of our ability. Um, how are corporations going to have to change? How are investors going to have to change? Because you're right. We do like our predictability. We've, we're, we've had this age of relative security. I mean, there's been some boom and bust, but the last hundred years, we've created this economic model that's relatively predictable and it's longer cycles. And now technology is coming quickly and we need to pivot fast. How do we do it, Grant? Well, it always takes it like some outsider to stir the pot. So I don't think electric cars would be where they are if they weren't, if Tesla didn't make them highly desirable and build out 25,000 superchargers and have like a, a production sedan that can go to zero to 60 in under two seconds. And, you know, I, they definitely, definitely pushed the entire car industry into believing it's possible. So um, I intend to do the same with oil and gas, like just leave the carbon down there. I'm not against oil and gas production. I think burning it is absurd and will be increasingly uneconomic through time. So we do need carbon in many products that we use, like the syringes right now used for uh, vaccinations all over the world or, or whatever. There are very credible uses for society to use plastics and, and various other things. Yes, we need to close that loop a, a lot better, but um, I'm not against asphalt roads. I'm not against carbon products, but yeah, it just, I think like at some point, I hope my grandkids think it's weird that way back when um, we used to just burn oil and gas. So what's needed to shift the corporation's disruptive um, 
disruptive newcomers. And I hope Proton is one of those. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for sharing about your technology, your vision, as well as your, your thoughts on where you see us going. It's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you today. Oh, thank you, Kim. It was a pleasure chatting with you as well. You're welcome. Thank you.